I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. I uh, sat up with uh, Michael Gates's new book, Hollywood in the Klondike, riveted by the unexpected archaeological find in 1978 of a horde of uh, silent films buried under the uh, permafrost in the Arctic gold rush town of uh, Dawson City. Michael, who joins me now, recounts his first-hand experience with the film and provides a marvelous context about the so-called Paris of the North and the role it played during the Klondike Gold Rush some 125 years ago. He looks at Hollywood's own connection to the North and how it depicted uh, the North. He provides film history recounting the exploits of many Hollywood figures who went from the Klondike to Hollywood, like Robert Service, Jack London, Sid Grauman, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, Marjorie Rambeau, and more. It's uh, really interesting to see what Dawson City was like during the gold rush as Mr. Gates takes us through the streets of where prospectors found entertainment, first through vaudeville, then with the advent of moving pictures, the cinema. It's uh, terrific Canadian history, too, and amazing, really, when you read about Michael's role as uh, some of these lost films were found. Michael Gates is the story laureate of uh, Yukon and the uh, author of uh, several historical books, including from the Klondike to Berlin and Dublin Gulch, the history of uh, Eagle, the Eagle Gold Mine. He was formerly the curator of collections for Klondike National Historical Sites in Dawson City. He also pens a popular column, History Hunter, for the Yukon News. The full title of the book is Hollywood in the Klondike, Dawson City's Great Film Find, and is uh, from Harbor Publishing. He joined me from Whitehorse nearly two weeks ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Michael Gates. Mr. Gates, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Um, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book. Um, I'm, I'm an old movie buff, and so um, this was fascinating to read um, about what was found um, all those years ago. Um, t- take us back to 1978. How did you end up in Dawson City? Well, I, I wanted to work in the Yukon, but uh, there weren't many uh, opportunities for someone with an archaeology background. And so I had broadened my uh, training by taking uh, museum conservation in Ottawa and with the, the sole purpose of returning to the Yukon. Uh-huh. And um, um, there wasn't a position for a conservator in the Yukon, but uh, a position opened up for curator, uh, curator collections for Klondike National Historic Sites in Dawson City. So I uh, threw my hat in the ring that the interview was successful, and I found myself in Dawson City in uh, early uh, 1978. So, so Klondike National Historic Sites, that's, that's a, um, a federal insti- uh, run by a federal institution, say the, the parks? Um, yeah, that was it, yeah. Parks Canada. It was a complex of uh, uh, historic sites. Uh, I would say per capita, Dawson City has more um, uh, nationally recognized people and places and events than any other part of the country. And, and you, you bring us some of those in, in, in the book, some of these, these colorful characters and, and uh, fascinating places. It's, it's just fun um, to read you, say, recreate what a street looked like back during the gold rush. Um, in, in terms of the, um, the research that, that one does for a book like this, the research and the writing, um, it, it seems like you had fun doing it. Um, is that safe for me to say? Well, absolutely. Um, 
I, uh, I I couldn't believe my good fortune when when I, I landed that job in Dawson City, and it was right up my alley. Uh, not quite what I had in mind, but uh, I took to it like a duck to water. And uh, uh, when when I wasn't on the job uh, working with history, I was pursuing it uh, uh, in my own time as well. So so take us back to the day that they they, they found all this film. Um, they were tearing down a building, I assume, and then they, this had been discovered. Is that right? Well, uh, what what happened was they had demolished the old hockey arena, which, uh-huh. which was you know, uh, you know clad in corrugated metal and uh, you know big structure, and uh, uh, they decided that they wanted to build a recreation center, and so they they had demolished it, and it was an, a barren, empty lot. And the uh, uh, one of the uh, aldermen, uh, the deputy mayor, Frank Barrett, uh, had uh, brought in a backhoe to test the the ground there for the ground conditions. We have a lot of permafrost in uh-huh. Dawson, and uh, if you don't deal with that, uh, your buildings don't uh, fare very well. And uh, when the uh, backhoe operator started digging uh, test holes, they started bringing up all kinds of strange debris. And uh, scattered amongst this material were uh, uh, metal canisters holding uh, you know, five or six reels of film. And uh, so he got the backhoe operator to stop, and he contacted Parks Canada. And because it was something that had been unearthed, they called in the archaeologist. Uh-huh. And he looked at it and, and realized it wasn't uh, on a Parks Canada property, and uh, it, uh, it couldn't see how it would fit into the Parks Canada mandate. So he uh, he mentioned it to me and said, you might want to go down and take a look, which I did. And uh, uh, sure enough, there there were uh, uh, reels, uh, rusty reels of film clogged with mud uh, lying around. There was uh, uh, unspooled film mm-hmm. lying on the ground. And the first thing I asked myself was, is this uh, the safety film, acetate film, or is this the flammable nitrate film. Mm-hmm. So I took a match and I lit a little piece of it and just about burned my fingers. It uh, burned so fast. So I knew that I was dealing with film that was uh, uh, pre-1950, but I, I wasn't quite sure how old. So I unspooled one and I came to um, uh, a header, a caption, and uh, it was the name of the film that was on that reel. It was called The Strange Case of Mary Page. And uh, just a few days later, I was uh, going through the old newspapers, and I discovered an advertisement for that very film in October of 1917. So I guess that's that's what really sparked my curiosity. And it's fascinating to read, I mean, um, just how, um, because a, a lot of silent film is lost, and, and uh, here uh, th- this collection was found, if you will, um, in terms of the film historians, what, what did they think later on in terms of, of what was uh, eventually uh, found there in Dawson City? Well, the, uh, uh, it was quite exciting because they did find a lot of film that uh, had thought to have been lost, that was thought to be uh, lost in the film world. And uh, um, i give you an example. Uh, Lillian Russell was a famous stage actress, and she seldom appeared in on film, mm-hmm. but one of the films that she did appear in was called Wildfire, 
and uh, we we found that uh, that film amongst the uh, the collection that was uncovered. Uh, incidentally, there were about 1,100 reels that uh, were salvaged as they started excavating to prepare the ground for building the new rec center. And of those 1,100 reels, there were about uh, well 527 were salvageable and uh, make part of the uh, Dawson collection now at the National Archives. So uh, there there were uh, there was quite a cross section of, of films. So, Princess Virtue, starring Mae Murray. Bliss, starring Harold Lloyd and B.B. Daniels. Mm. The Scandalmongers, uh, written and directed by Lois Weber. And The Inspector's Double, directed by William Bodine. Douglas Fairbanks appears in The Half-Breed. And uh, Pearl White, who is acknowledged as the queen of the serials, appears in a 15-part uh, um, serial called Pearl of the Army. So that that was uh, that was all quite exciting, and uh, uh, at the same time they were uncovering a lot of uh, uh, newsreels. Mm -hmm. And what made these newsreels interesting was that uh, the distributors had added Canadian content to them. So when uh, when this material was finally um, uh, cataloged, when when uh, the material that had been taken out of the ground had been identified and sent to Ottawa. The uh, uh, director of the National Film Archives, a man named Sam Kula, worked with the uh, Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. They divvied up the films because uh, there was an international convention that you returned the films to the country of origin. Mm -hmm. So all the, the Hollywood footage went back to the United States, and we hung on to the uh, newsreels. And I think there were oh, about 170 of those in, in total. So it, uh, it was something that uh, didn't exist uh, in the National Archives before this collection was uncovered. Some people uh, did ask, uh, locals if you will, ask why uh, the films once excavated uh, were brought to Ottawa. Um, I guess in terms of processing or, 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 or uh, cataloging, etc., that, that all had to be done there in, in Ottawa at the National Archives, is that right? Well, there, there were two or three factors to consider. The, the first was that uh, this film is uh, very, very dangerous. It's considered a hazardous good. And uh, uh, you need special conditions to store them in controlled environment and something a place that uh, is uh, fireproof. Mm. So that's that's one issue. Um, another issue is um, how to copy film like this, because these these films, uh, you can't put them on a, a standard spool and uh, run them through a projector because uh, they've shrunk and they've you know, all kinds of distortion has occurred, and so you need specialized equipment. They certainly didn't have that sort of thing in, in the Yukon at the time. And I guess the third thing was there wasn't any Yukon content on it. Mm. So uh, it, it was more appropriate for this to end up where it did. And as soon as it was taken out of the ground, uh, you noticed it was degrading. Is that right? Uh, well, it, it didn't take long. Uh, we, we moved it into uh, an old root cellar in an industrial complex that Parks Canada managed. And uh, uh, there, the temperature, even though it was the height of summer, it was still hovering around the freezing mark. Mm -hmm. So that, that helped to stabilize them. But uh, by the time uh, these films got to Ottawa, they were, um, they were starting to get all kinds of uh, 
I guess, fungal growth on them, uh, mold, and uh, they were uh, they were wet. And uh, as a consequence, if you handled them, uh, the, the, the emulsion would, would wipe off quite easily. So they had to find a, a way to stabilize these films. So, yeah, they... Uh, um, they, they had to take action very quickly in order to uh, you know, save these films. So you take us in, in the book uh, to the late 1800s, the, during the gold rush, into, into the early part of the 20, 20th century to give us a sense of what social life was like. And uh, in terms of film, um, just how, how, I mean, it is a remote place. It is far away from, from home for a lot of people, for most people. Um, Film really was the only thing that they, they, they had, I mean, other than drinking, I guess, right? <laughs> well, uh, consider the context. Uh, in 1896, uh, what became Dawson City was nothing but moose pasture, mm. and uh, the, only, uh, the only settlement there was the First Nation settlement of Trocek, which was on the, uh, opposite, on the other side of the river, of the Klon- mouth of the Klondike River, from what later became Dawson. So uh, it was uh, thousands of miles away from civilization, and in order to get to that area, uh, it was a very arduous trek. So uh, that you know, that's that's the first thing to consider. So anybody who who came into uh, Dawson in the uh, uh, during the gold rush had to bring everything they needed that would sustain them for a year, which meant that. Uh, they'd end up with a 1,000 pounds to a ton of uh, uh, provisions that they had to haul on their backs uh, uh, from uh, Tidewater, 32 miles to uh, Bennett, B.C. And part of that journey involved uh, climbing the Golden Stairs and the Chilkoot Pass. Um, And for an average uh, stampeder, uh, that could result in uh, 25 trips up over the the pass, carrying a 50 50-pound pack, and uh, and then uh, making the trip, uh, the 32-mile trip, to Bennett. So by the time they transported their goods from Tidewater to Bennett, um, uh, many of them had walked uh, close uh, close to or well over 2,000 miles. So and that was just the beginning of the trip, and uh, there were rapids and uh, lakes that they had to navigate and. Uh, uh, when they arrived in Dawson uh, in, in ni- uh, 1898, uh, many of them uh, were saddened to discover that most of the good ground had already been occupied by the uh, prospectors who were on the scene when the discovery first uh, occurred. So the, the stampeders kept piling in and piling in until there were thousands and thousands of them uh, in Dawson. And then uh, the weather changed, the season changed, the Yukon River froze solid, and essentially uh, you had this captive audience of uh, somewhere between fifteen and 25,000 uh, stampeders in a strange place, in temperatures plunging to as, as cold as uh, minus 60 or minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, the thing, the, the most abundant thing in the community was gold, and uh, so uh, what do you do when you have a captive audience and, and lots of money? You you seek entertainment. So uh, there were an abundance of uh, saloons, dance halls, and theaters, 
and uh, there were seven theaters in Dawson during the gold rush, all with live entertainment. Now, silent movies had only been invented uh, in 1896, the same year that gold was discovered in the Klondike. Yeah. So it was absolutely new, and there was still a novelty. So the first moving pictures that were shown in Dawson uh, were in, in one of the theaters in 1898, in September of 1898. But initially, they were just viewed as kind of a novelty, mm. and uh, they weren't the, uh, the main attraction. And it, it took another decade before uh, moving pictures became uh, the, the, the regular uh, uh, menu in the, the theaters. So a stage show so, would would say uh, would be part of the, the the evening's entertainment, with with the with with the film piece, if you will, uh, only a small part of it, right? That's right. They yeah. they were kind of a novelty feature. They, they they'd have vaudeville entertainment and. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'd have singers and dancers and uh, comedians and, uh, you know, acrobats. They even put on things like boxing matches, uh, anything that would attract a crowd. And uh, these, these theaters were very lively places where they had, uh, they had a bar, they had gambling, they had uh, the live theater, and uh, uh, when the, the show was over, they pulled the benches aside, uh, the orchestra would strike up, and they'd start dancing, and they'd... They'd, they'd dance, uh, you know, a dollar a dance until yeah. the wee hours of the morning. You mentioned seven theaters at one point. Um, they were quite competitive with one another in terms of wanting to attract these the, the audience, right? Yeah, it's it's really interesting uh, how uh, how quickly they changed hands and how how often the uh, uh, the the actors and performers move from one theater to another and back again. And so it, uh, it it was it was a lively scene, absolutely lively scene. And it, what's really curious is that the people who later went on to be really famous in Hollywood mm-hmm. were things like the bartenders and uh, the uh, a paper boy. Sid Grauman was a paper boy in Boston. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, William Desmond Taylor, uh, who who went on to be an actor and uh, a, a prominent director. He was a timekeeper for one of the dredging companies that came um, after the gold rush had subsided. So uh, the the big names uh, in live theater didn't end up being big names in Hollywood. And the ones who were sort of anonymous during the gold rush were the ones who later became famous. Yeah, Robert Service, for example, he was just a bank clerk, wasn't he? Uh, he started uh, uh, his career in the Yukon in Whitehorse, and it was there that... Uh, uh, he had his first book of poems published, mm. and uh, uh, it, it wasn't until about 1907, I think, that uh, service actually got transferred to Dawson City. And by that time, his his reputation had already been established. But you know, it's curious that uh, uh, many of uh, his his poems, and he wrote a novel called The Trail of '98. These poems and uh, that novel inspired Hollywood, and they turned them into films. And uh, uh, The Trail of 98 was uh, partially filmed in the Yukon, and uh, it was filmed, it was um, screened in Sid Grauman's theater in Hollywood. And interestingly, it was the last silent film shown in Grauman's theater before they converted to the talkies. Wow, yeah. It's just fascinating to see these, these, these sort of these things come full circle, if you will. Um, 
it takes service for for a moment and and his writing as well as that of Jack London for example and then um the the, the sort of um portrayal in hollywood in 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 film how effective were these works say service london in terms of um uh say uh, how the wider popular culture say viewed the Klondike gold rush well, uh, first of all, uh, the, the Klondike was, and, and the writings of service in London were great inspiration for Hollywood, and they made uh, more than 200 films based on their works. Mm-hmm. But uh, once it was in the hands of Hollywood, uh, they uh, uh, they made it over in their own image. And uh, there, there were a, a lot of different factors, both economic and logistical, that made it difficult for them to portray uh, the Yukon, uh, accurately, and uh, uh, there are also some preconceived notions of what an audience would expect to see. And for example, uh, a lot of films uh, that portray the the Yukon and, and the Klondike Gold Rush, you know, they have things like uh, murders taking place in the uh, you know the middle of the night in summer. Well, of course, uh, in the uh, the summer we have 24 <laughs> hours of daylight. Right. It lasts from uh, early May until uh, you know, sort of halfway through August. But uh, you know, uh, Hollywood's uh, reaction is, well, who who believed that it wasn't dark? <laughs> so that, that's that's one example. And uh, uh, Pierre Burton uh, uh, really uh, made made fun of them when they converted his book, his classic book on the gold rush uh, called Klondike, uh-huh. into a, a television series back in the early '60s. And uh, he, he was brought in as a consultant. And when you know they discussed the you know the, the historical accuracy, you know he'd say, well, you know um, your portrayal here is uh, uh, you know you've got uh, these pine trees, and uh, you know what we have up here is a spruce forest and uh, you know stunted trees. And well, they they couldn't do anything about that because they couldn't afford to uh, film it in the Yukon. It had to be in California. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, well, you know, uh, I noticed that uh, you, you had them all clean-shaven. Well, back during the gold rush, they had beards and mustaches. But that wouldn't work because the uh, uh, the producer thought that uh, people would me- think that that meant that this was a comedy. <laughs> so they couldn't, they couldn't have that. And, uh, you know, uh, he said uh, they smoked pipes and cigars. You know, cigarettes weren't very common at the time. But they couldn't have that because one of the major sponsors for this television series was a cigarette company. <laughs> so there are all these different factors that uh, come into play that uh, cause the uh, uh, historical element and the accuracy to kind of fly out the window. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a marvelous story in terms of of uh, how the films ended up where they did, and and you tell us why in, in the book. Um, I, I don't want to spoil it because I think people should 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 read it um, for, for what happens. But um, one of the reasons why you wrote the book, and you say this at the beginning, is that there have been a lot of inaccuracies over the last forty five years or so. Um, uh, a lot of things that that, that have uh, come out of the the uh, Dawson film find that uh, were untrue. What were some of those myths, say, or untruths uh, that, that uh, you'd, you'd heard over the years say, that you wanted to correct? Well, uh, I, I won't get into specifics, but, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they kind of uh, they got the gist of uh, the circumstances 
and then they sort of filled in the uh, uh, the, the gaps with their own interpretation. And I uh, I had worked with a, a film company on production of a, a Gold Rush miniseries, mm-hmm. uh, where you know they really hadn't paid much attention to the historical information I provided them. And uh, then I had the good fortune to work with a New York filmmaker named Bill Morrison, who produced. Uh, uh, he he worked with the uh, silent films from the Dawson collection, uh, and from it he produced uh, Dawson City: Frozen Time, and uh, uh, with a, a little bit of sound at the beginning and a little bit of sound at the end, the whole thing was done as a silent film, using footage from the uh, the Dawson collection. Um. So uh, uh, I, I was pleased after having worked with uh, a project that uh, didn't have much respect for the historical accuracy to have worked with Morrison, who really, really tried to, to get the story right. And, uh, and then I realized that uh, um, the, 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 the key players, Sam Cooler, for example, mm-hmm. had, had passed away. There, there weren't many people left who could uh, relate the circumstances who were part of the original uh, project to recover these films. Uh, you, you write uh, near the end of the the, the book about, um, say, people uh, wondering if there is still film there. Um, uh, j- just before the pandemic, uh, uh, the start of the pandemic, people uh, had plans to. There were a couple of people who had plans to go up there and and, and try to find more. Uh, where are they in terms of of say that search? Well. Um, Yes, uh, in in September of 2019, uh, Michael Goy, who's a cinematographer from Hollywood, and and Bill Morrison, the filmmaker I just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, came, and uh, my wife and I escorted them to uh, Dawson, um, and uh, the uh, the mayor uh, uh, took us to the recreation center and allowed them to climb in under the foundations to kind of examine the area where the films were originally found, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, I think there was kind of a tacit understanding that uh, if the building was ever demolished uh, for one reason or another, they, they'd let them know, and they would be interested in coming in to see if any more films were still buried. But even more interesting, the, uh, uh, the newspapers from the period tell us that around 1932, when they converted from the silent films to the talkies, mm-hmm. and of course, the silent films didn't have any value anymore, and uh, they had stockpiled them. Uh, it was too expensive to ship them back to the distributors outside. Yeah. And uh, so they had all of this uh, useless film footage that nobody was going to watch anymore now that the talkies had arrived. And uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, theater managers took two or three tons of these reels of film down to the waterfront and threw them in the river. <laughs> it just breaks your heart to read that in the, in the book. Well, no, no. Not precisely. Uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, a young lady was uh, fishing somewhere along the waterfront, and she hooked a reel and pulled it out. Yeah. So we know that at least one and probably more are still there. And you say, well, they've been underwater for a long time. They're yeah. probably not worth anything. Yeah. But a few years ago, they um, uh, recovered a, a, a box of reels of film from the bottom of the Atlantic off of Iceland. And they'd been submerged for, you know, I think, 30 or 40 years. But when they uh, put them into a projector, they discovered that uh, the water hadn't penetrated and they could still see the footage. Wow. So uh, 
there's there's uh, some hope there that uh, even if these films have been submerged all this time, that they might still be salvageable. And and uh, um, is there a possibility that there could be films, say, under uh, foundations of buildings or, or, or things like that? Uh, well, um, there's probably only one one place in Dawson that uh, we we'd likely find them uh, buried in the ground, but. Um, there's every possibility that uh, that we'll find more uh, somewhere along the waterfront. You uh, in in the book by talking about meeting um, your your wife Kathy Jones as a result of all of this. It's it's a wonderful way that that you you end the book. Um, what was her involvement uh, back then in the in the in 1978? Kathy Jones was the director of the Dawson City Museum. Sam Kula, the director of the National Film Archives, flew to Dawson in person to examine the site and to get a feeling for you know, what, what was there and whether it was worth anything. And he quickly assessed that uh, this, this was uh, salvageable material and well worth the effort of recovery. And then he said, you know, I, I, it's really difficult uh, to work within departments in the government. And he, he said, is there, is there some other agency outside of the government that uh, we could drop a contract with. And uh, I immediately thought of the Dawson Museum, and uh, I contacted Kathy Jones, and she came over and joined us. And uh, standing there at the site of this empty lot with these vagrant uh, reels of film lying about, we discussed what we were going to do and agreed that uh, the museum would uh, uh, undertake to... Uh, recover these films, and then go through each one and determine the content. And uh, Sam came back to my office with me, and over the telephone he dictated the terms of the contract to one of his uh, staff back in Ottawa. Uh -huh. And and that's uh, how, how the museum became involved. And uh, I arranged for some Parks Canada uh, facilities to be made available to store them temporarily and to work on these films. And uh, you know, whatever sort of technical advice I could give that, that might be useful. And uh, uh, then, then we had the, the big problem at the end of uh, how to get these things to Ottawa. And uh, I don't know if you want to know that story or not. But well, I, I found you—you contacted, say, courier companies. You'd contacted even Greyhound, but none of them wanted to touch the stuff, right? That's right. It's classified as hazardous goods. Mm -hmm. But one of the guys that I worked with, uh, Jim Riley, um, was a military man. And he said, well, they handle stuff like that all the time. So we got the word back to Sam Kula, and, and I don't know how they arranged it, but uh, in short order, the, uh, the armed forces had a Hercules transport. Uh, we got the film to Whitehorse with no problems, but mm -hmm. that's as far as it would go. So they flew this Hercules into uh, uh, Whitehorse, uh, presumably on some kind of routine run, but while they were there, they, they picked up the crates of containing these uh, uh, recovered films. And they, they flew them back to Ottawa, and they arrived on November 11th, 1978. Yeah, yeah. Um, Michael, it's a hell of a book and, and uh, just a fascinating uh, um, a part of history in, in one place that, that intersects with so many other things. Um, are you working on another book now? Well, as it, it, it turns out, yes, uh, I, I've got two or three lined up. But the next one, I'm uh, I'm collaborating with my wife, and we're going to write a biography of uh, an amazing man 
actually an amazing couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, uh, active. Uh, he came into the Yukon during the gold rush, uh, so he, he discovered gold and did some mining, and then he returned to the practice of law, became involved in politics. Um, he was elected to the territorial uh, legislature, and then he was appointed the governor, or, or commissioner as they called him. Mm-hmm. Um, he went overseas and uh, during World War One, got wounded, came back, um, ran for parliament, was elected in 1921, and between him and his wife, they they held the uh, the seat from 1921 to 1949. His name was George Black, and his far more famous wife is Martha Black, who was only the second woman ever uh, elected to the House of Commons. Well, we'll await. Well, yeah, we'll await that with great interest. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan, such a fan of your work now after reading this book. Um, I can't wait to, to read that one. Uh, congratulations on uh, Hollywood in in the Klondike. Uh, uh, Michael, and and good luck with it. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Joe, and uh, I appreciate uh, the uh, care and attention you paid to reading the book before we had the interview. The book is called Hollywood in the Klondike, Dawson City's Great Film Find. It's uh, from Harbor Publishing. Its author, Michael Gates, joined me on the line from Whitehorse in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plata.